Hebrews chapter 7 tonight, we want to continue in our study in the book of Hebrews. We are just about made our way halfway through. We're looking at this with a great bit of detail. Tonight we want to teach about Jesus, the new Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest mentioned in the Old Testament. He was mentioned in chapter 5, also of Hebrews. And his name means king of righteousness. So in Hebrews 7, I'm going to begin reading with verse 1, and I will read down to verse 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we are grateful to punctuate another day with a good time in the Word, a study in the Word. So over the next few moments, as we look into the Scriptures, speak to our hearts, help us to understand how Jesus is our new Melchizedek. Help us to appreciate what he has accomplished for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I told you in chapter 5 when we talked about Melchizedek there in the first 11 verses that we would return to this in chapter 7. And that is because chapter 7 really gets into what is important, I think, about Melchizedek's relationship to Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the Jewish nation. Well, in chapter 5, all the way down to verse 11, he was talking about Melchizedek, but he had to interrupt his discussion by telling them that they were dull of hearing and there were things he wanted to say to them, but they weren't ready. So that's why he runs into this whole discourse on the difference between milk for babes and meat for mature people. And then he goes into chapter 6 talking about uh, the possibility of people falling away from faith, uh, falling away from grace believers that turn from God. So the end of chapter 6 speaks of the Lord having made a promise to Abraham, a promise that he made by his own name because he could not swear by anyone greater. And we told you that the, the difference in how we swear and how God makes a promise is that God is able to authenticate, he's able to validate, and he's able to back up any promise that he makes. You remember as, as kids, uh, we might say something like this, well, I, I swear on my grandma's grave that what I'm telling you is true. And now, you know as well as I do that that kind of a oath doesn't matter because it's not like grandma's coming back from the grave to grab you by the ankles if you're lying anyhow. So 
God could swear by no one greater, is what it says in chapter 6. Well, then chapter 7 deals with Melchizedek. And as I said, the name Melech means king, and Zedek is righteousness. He's the king of righteousness, but he has a dual ministry. He's a king and a priest. You don't see that too often. David got in trouble, excuse me, Saul got in trouble trying to be king and priest. And the Lord rebuked him and took the, the kingdom away because of that and because of some of his, his other sins. Now, what I want to emphasize this evening is the relationship between the lesser and the greater. Abraham's the lesser. Melchizedek is the greater. Melchizedek becomes the image or the type of our Savior, whereas Abraham and his seed obviously are a picture of the believer and the church, and we'll be able to see this clearly as we proceed. So chapter 7, verse 1 then gives us the information regarding Genesis 14. So let's go back there. The first book of the Bible, Genesis 14. And we need to have some idea of what it is that occurred. Now, I'll give you some of the background before I read. The kings of the east conspired together and came into a particular region. And according to verse 11, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their victuals and went on their way and took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So they took captive the people and confiscated their personal properties. Somebody escaped in verse 13 and told Abraham that his relative had been taken captive. Verse 14, Abraham armed his trained servants. And I told you this is the first record we have in the Bible of a, of a general, someone with a trained group of people involved with soldiery, ready to go and attack someone. This is the first name that we have attached to someone. So Abraham divides his people up in verse 15. They went against the kings of the east, and in verse 16, they brought back all the goods, not some, but all the goods, even rescuing Lot and his personal property. Later, you can see in verse 18, the king of, king of Salem, Melchizedek, he brought forth bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God which has delivered your enemies into your hand. And you can see as we continue down a little bit further, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people and you hold on to the the spoil in verse 22, Abraham said, I have lift up my hand unto the Lord, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread, even a shoe latchet, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say you have made me rich. So he said, I basically swore a promise to God that anything I recover, I'm not keeping for my own personal enrichment. That's what he's saying, because I don't want anybody to be able to say that they have made me what I am other than God. I don't want anybody to say I became rich by taking from somebody else. I don't want somebody to say I stole from someone else. And that's why you can see he made that statement in verse 23. Now going back then to Hebrews 7, we have to say something then about the whole idea in verse 2 of Abraham gave a tenth. 
This is where we get the tithe from. This is why believers tithe. This is why I've taught consistently that 10% of anything we find, earn, inherit, or is given to us belongs to God. The reason for that is because just like Abraham, we're of his seed. We don't want to be able to say that anybody else enriched us other than God. Now, if you think about it, some people will say they don't like tithing. They don't believe in tithing. They'll say, well, that's under the Old Testament law. So I don't have to accept the principle of the tithe after Jesus' resurrection, post-Calvary. However, as you can see from this story here with Abraham and Melchizedek, the tithe did not come with the law. Neither did the Sabbath day. Abraham lived several hundred years before Moses ever received the Ten Commandments and came down and gave the law. So we don't tithe because it's in the Old Testament law any more than we honor the Lord's day because it's in the Old Testament law. These things go back beyond Moses' custom and Moses' tradition. And to be quite honest with you, we get off fairly well with God saying he only wants 10 percent. He could have said he wanted 40. I mean, look, the government takes 50 from you, depending on how much you make and what what uh, economic bracket you're in. So God, he's only saying, I want a dime out of every dollar. So when it comes to our our giving to God, our budgets and things like that, the monies that we allocate for our lifestyle, always remember that when you figure your budget, you don't figure God's money into yours. Then you don't end up in trouble. The children of Israel in the book of Malachi got in trouble with God because they were, as the scripture says, robbing from God. So if God says, bring my money to me or bring your money to him, then he doesn't want us to be uh, selfish and stingy in that regard. So verse two, then Abraham gave a tenth part. So Melchizedek didn't pry it out of his hand. He didn't force him, didn't compel him, compel him, didn't put a spear to Abraham's heart. Abraham gave it willingly. And the scripture says in the New Testament, God loves a cheerful giver. Be happy to give back to God. Be grateful that you have something to give to God in the first place. Maybe there was a time in your life when you wanted to give and you were unable to give. But then when God puts you in a position to be able to give, give to God and be happy to give to God, especially in a world when so many people don't want to. The scripture says that when you give, God gives it back to you, pressed down and shaken together. Men will give into your bosom. That is to simply say that God will give you more than you could ever give to him. That's, that's what that means. Well, verse 2 again. The name of Melchizedek by interpretation is king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem. Salem being an old ancient word that describes peace. We also use the word shalom to define peace. It says he's without mother or father. Now, he, that, that does not mean he didn't have uh, parentage. It just means his appearance in Scripture is without any kind of genealogy. It's very similar to Sarah. Sarah comes on the scene as Abraham's wife. We don't know who Sarah's parents were or anything like that or grandparents and, and, and stuff like that. So Melchizedek, he seems to be someone without any real kind of parentage. And we don't know anything about when he was born. We know nothing about when he died. So verse three says he's made like unto 
the Son of God. He's like a type of the Son of God manifested in the first book, the book of beginnings. So it's almost like you're running into Jesus. And Genesis 14 is what, what the writer wants you to see. And that's why in verse 4 he says, consider how great this guy was. He had to have been great if a man like Abraham, the patriarch, would take of all the spoils that he had and give unto him. See, in a submissive way. You would not render your own, uh, your own items to someone else unless they were greater than you. Now, this, this family that I lived with in Jordan, the, the house had four stories, and on each floor, there was a different family. So the oldest boy lived up top, then the oldest girl, then I lived with the grandparents here, and then the youngest daughter lived down there on the, the basement floor. <clears throat> now, obviously, the grandparents were retired, but what, it, what interested me was that all of them had different jobs. One was involved with wood carving and the wife was a teacher in our Arabic school. Another gentleman was involved with a, a cleaning service. And another one had a, the other daughter she taught in the school, uh, but her husband worked for the government in some regard. So the grandmother and grandfather where I lived, they didn't work. They were older. But all of the heads of the homes on the different floors, whenever they received their paycheck, they all, at the same time, every week, brought their money to the grandfather with whom I lived. And he's the one that dispersed all the money and paid the bills and stuff like that. So when people wanted to go out and, you know, Christmas time, buy stuff for their family, they came down to the grandpa and the grandpa, he, he gave monies and stuff like that to, to the rest of them, and that's how they handled that. Now, the, the, the thing that interested me about that is because I don't think on any given day on this earth, my brothers and I would have did that to my dad. But that's how, that was their tradition, that was their custom, that's how they handled uh, their situation. And the, the example that we have of Abraham is that the man he was given to was greater, and the, the point I'm trying to emphasize is Abraham obviously knew who he was, because if he didn't know who he was, he wasn't going to give it to a stranger. So if he didn't have a personal relationship with Melchizedek, he certainly had to know something about who this individual was. That's what I'm, I'm getting at. So here we are as, as just like the children of the tribe of Levi in verse 5, we, we have an office of the priesthood as Christians because Revelation chapter 1 says that we've been made kings and priests unto God. We also come from the loins of Abraham, just like the, the people mentioned there in verse uh, number 11, the uh, Levites and everybody. We come from the loins spiritually because we're spiritually of the seed of Abraham. And if Melchizedek, according to verse number three, is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have to understand that we also render our tithes and present our 10% to Jesus, our high priest, because it's a biblical thing to do. So anybody that ever tells you that tithing is not in the Bible, you just take them to Hebrews chapter 7 and say, as long as I'm of the seed of Abraham spiritually, and as long as Jesus is the new king of righteousness who abides in heaven and makes mediation for us spiritually, then 10% of everything I find, earn, inherit, or is given to me belongs to him. Now that's just a tithe. That's not counting offerings. That's just a tithe. It's a very important principle. The scripture says if, if we cannot be faithful over something as simple as what the scripture calls filthy lucre, 
which is the ancient way of describing money. If we, can't be, if we can't be mature with money, how can we be mature with the greater things that God wants to give us? If you can't trust a man with a dollar bill, you're probably not going to be able to trust him with a 10. If you can't trust him or her with a 10, they're probably not going to be good with a 100. And if they're not good with a 100, a 1,000 is going to be a problem. And you just keep going up in the increments and you'll see it becomes more and more of a problem. Many people don't have a problem tithing when they're only giving pennies on the dollar. The greater problem begins when they have to tithe on massive amounts of money. Because then the idea of having to give to the Lord, they, 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 they start shaking, breaking out in sweats and hives coming over them at the idea that they, they have, to, have to put that in a church or some kind of religious organization or they got to give it to some kind of ministry. But, but going back to what happened here, the patriarch Abraham was not giving this to anyone other than the Melchizedek. And when you tithe, and all throughout your life as you have tithed, you've never been giving it to a church. You've been giving it to your Lord and your Savior. Now, people have to be responsible for what, what they do and how they handle the finances. But you keep your heart right if you realize that what you're doing, you're doing for God. Because if you're not careful you'll find that, that, that people will uh, disappoint you and you'll be a little bit unhappy. Now, the, the thing about the Old Testament was they only had one temple, one tabernacle. So they, 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 they couldn't say now, I, I want to, instead of giving it to the tabernacle, I want to take 10% this month and I just want to give it to the Canaanite Fire Association. You know, they, they put out fires around, around out here in the, in the land and we want to make sure we, we, we help them. Now, that's nice. And, and that's good, but that's not where it's supposed to go, okay? It, it, it goes to God. That, that's not supposed to change. Look at verse 5. Those that are the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithe, to receive tithe. So they've been commanded according to the law to ensure they receive tithe. And the reason for that, Malachi says the tithes are for the storehouse to ensure there's meat or food in the storehouse. That's how the priests are cared for. That's how the poor, the orphan, the widows are cared for. And, and, and when you have poor and orphans and widows in the fellowship, then you have to go out of your way to make sure you look after them. Yeah. If, if a roof needs to be shingled, it needs to be shingled, folks. That's just how it happens in, in a local church. You do what you can to help, help the people. And then it says here in verse uh, number five, the last sentence, they come out of the loins of Abraham. So as Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, the sons of Levi were in his loins paying tithes also. That's what happened. Verse six. Then it says his descent is not counted from them. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham. Well, you can't say that Melchizedek was a Levite. He was not. But Abraham gave to him whose descent seemed to be eternal. And that's why in verse 7 it says that the lesser was blessed of the better. Okay, now let's, let's, let's build on this just a little bit more. I, I remember one time a, a man was telling me in a church that... Um, it seemed like every time he gave a check or paid money in the church, it seemed like the family ended up with uh, 
a new line of Mercedes Benzes. So he's trying to figure out well, what, you know, what's going on with all this money. And for some reason, this gentleman just one night just felt like confessing all his sins to me as we were sitting. I didn't know what was going on. He's a very wealthy man. <clears throat> and of course, when, when people make a whole lot of cash, typically, people that make a whole lot of cash normally know something about how to acquire it and how to hold on to it. Okay? And so they don't like to see a whole lot of waste. Well, if you perceive that there's some kind of discrepancy and somebody's doing something that is not so nice with monies. Remember, your monies are always given to the Lord. You don't have to keep giving them to somebody you think is cheating you. Don't, don't ever do that. You know, when you put your head on your pillow at night, know that what you're doing, you're doing in the right way. If I thought for a second that by giving money to a particular group on television and, and it says that... Um, you know, help support these kids overseas and they're hungry and they got big bellies and okay, then you start giving money, then you realize, okay, when you give, only 20 cents out of every dollar makes it over there to them because you got some fat cat up here making a million dollars here and then somebody else coming all the way down like that. Then I start thinking about other ways to be a better steward over what God gives me. Now, other people may think otherwise, but that's how I think. You know, that's how I think. We are not bound in the New Testament to give specifically or only uh, to one place. However, our tithes should go where we worship. There's no doubt about that. Our tithes should go where we worship. And we should be able to uh, provide offerings in, in, in different places and things like that. So even Tiffany and I, we tithe in our local churches. That's how we tithe. But we give to different ministries. And bless and help them. That's the same thing with you. Uh, where you go attend worship, you're a pastor, you tie there, but you're able to offer, uh, present offerings in other locations. Now notice in verse number, number eight here, it says, but here, people who receive tithes, they die. And human beings receive tithes, the, Le the Levitical priesthood. But over there, talking about the Lord, of whom in his witness, he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. So when Abraham gave to Melchizedek, as I said before, Levi was in the loins of Abraham. So by faith, Levi himself was paying tithes. That's why the, the tribe of Levi was able to receive tithes from the children of Israel. And remember, God told the people, he said, all of the tribes will receive an inheritance of land when they go into the promised land, but the Levites received no real estate. Their inheritance was to serve in the tabernacle of God. That's what their inheritance was. So God ensured that the priests were well cared for by having the 10% come from the tribes to take care of the priests. Now, if you were of the tribe of Issachar and you wanted to be a priest, you just couldn't be one. And if you were of the tribe of Levi and you didn't want to work in the tabernacle, but you wanted to be of the tribe of Gad, it was too late. You were born into it. You're just stuck and your life is restricted in that area. But it's not like that for us. We're kings and priests. We tithe unto the Lord and we're quite happy to be able to do that. And we should really be excited about being able to give. Because as I said, in the Old Testament, they had one institution to give to. And when you look throughout the Old Testament, you find one story after another of corruption with the priesthood, corruption with the kings. And it didn't matter how wicked the people were at the top, they still had to tithe. 
no matter what. They had no way out, no outlet, no exit. But today, it's not like that. The New Testament church is a spiritual body stretching across this world. And if you would ever find out that somebody was extorting or taking advantage of money in an unlawful way, simply start giving your money uh, somewhere else. And that'd be the that'd be the end of that. Okay, so the, the tithe then, according to verse number nine and ten, was essential for the tribe of Levi, as I may so say, Levi also received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So the only way myself and other pastors, thousands of pastors, millions of pastors across America and around the world are able to do what they do is because they have people in the church that are faithful to tithe, faithful to give. That's, that's, how, that, that's how that occurs. I've had uh, people in time past, and of course, you know, whenever a minister has to teach on tithing, the whole thing sounds self-serving, you know, just, just sound. But if, if you don't teach people right from wrong, they don't ever know. And, and most churches don't teach on it or talk about it, so people stumble around in ignorance, and then you got to sell chicken, and you got to have the kids sell M&Ms, and then you got to sell quilts, and then you got to get T-shirts and cups with pictures of, of the pastor and the deacons and everybody on it. Just to, you know, you try to get people to buy stuff that they don't want, you know, so they're going to spend, they're going to they're auction $50 for a cup that nobody's ever going to drink out of just to try to raise some money. And I've always said, look, if you already have the money, just give the money to the church and bless the people. Why do they have to go through all of this just to try to, to get it out of you, you know? But as a, as a pastor, though, and I've taught on this for friends of mine when I've gone into their churches, I said, I've had people who, who said to me, well, pastor, you know, I believe in tithing. I believe in giving offerings, offerings and, and helping people and stuff like that. But, um, I mean, I, I just don't, don't know what to do. I, you know, I've got all these bills I've got to take care of, and, and you know, then this is coming up, and, and that's coming up, and I mean, I'm just, just not going to be able to tie it, you know, six months or a year or something like that, you know. And they said, well, well, Pastor, what do you think about that? I mean, I mean okay. So, so here's what I normally say. I say, look, look, God never authorized me to be his banker. You give God what belongs to him. Because you're not going to get in trouble with me. You're going to get in trouble with him, though. Because Malachi is the one who said, if you're a thief or a robber, you're going to get in trouble with him. He says, if you, if the one aspect of life, the scripture says you are, you are allowed to test God or prove God is with money. It says, prove me now herewith, says the Lord, and I'll pour you out blessings from the windows in heaven if you take the time to be faithful to give. So, so usually what I hear when somebody says that, I, I, I hear, uh, Pastor, I, I don't want you to be able to pay your bills either. And, and, and I don't want your wife to be able to have a nice dress. And, and, and I, I just as well prefer if your car breaks down. That, that's, that's usually what I hear when, when people say that. But fortunately, uh, those aren't things that Pastor Darrell hears quite too often because Pastor Darrell teaches like this. You see, I'm serious. Uh, churches won't, they won't talk about it. And, and pastors are embarrassed to talk about it. But if, if you don't, if you don't teach people, then they won't even know how to help their own private economy. Be faithful to God and God will help you. And, and even if you are struggling and having difficulties as you pay your tithes, and I've been there too and, and, and lived in that valley and uh, bought the T-shirt 
and lived in a tent there for a little while. I, I can tell you, I can tell you one thing. If if you if you don't do it, it'd even be worse. It'd even, it'd even be worse. Absolutely. It'd be worse for you. Because you're demonstrating to God that you can't be can't be faithful. So look at verse 11. If there was perfection under the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek? So he's saying if, if the Old Testament covenantal system of the mediation of sacrifices and the reception of tithes, if it was already good and the, and, and, and the best it could be, what would be the point of Jesus becoming the new Melchizedek? And he says this is why in verse 12, the priesthood has changed. That is of necessity a change also of the law. Since Jesus now is our high priest, we don't go to one specific location in order to find the high priest. Wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, Jesus is in the midst of them. So if I'm in Saudi Arabia, if I'm in Norway, if I'm in Rhodesia, if I'm in some Polynesian island or if I'm down in the jungle somewhere of, of South America, wherever I am, I can present my tithe to my savior. So if, if I'm in a house church in China and there are only nine of us and those nine believers constitute what is a body of believers. And we say we're going to gather faithfully every week and assemble and minister to one another and nurture one another and we're going to gather our tithes in to do the work and the will of God and we've got a shepherd that's looking after us and feeding and teaching, then, then that's a proper place to tithe. There's nothing that says that a tithe has to go uh, to whatever kind of a institution somebody uh, wants to say. It has to be connected with giving to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, here we are in America. We're all plugged into local fellowship and being part of a local fellowship. We tithe through our local fellowship because they marry our living. They bury our dead. That's how we do it. Uh, when, when I have people call me from time to time and and, and this this does happen quite often, not just here, but in the other towns, too. <clears throat> Pastor Darrell, I'm calling. I got your phone number from so and so. or I saw your phone number in the book and I'm calling and we've got a crisis in our family right now. Uh, We've just got a shut off notice from the city and they're going to cut off the water, talking about the electricity and all of these different things. And just want to know if the, the church could, could could maybe help us out. OK, what kind of help you need? Oh, you know, church could maybe give three or four hundred dollars. OK, so then I start asking questions. OK. <clears throat> Excuse me, sir or ma'am. What's your name again? Hey, give me the name. OK. Uh, where do you go to church? Oh, no, I don't, I don't go to church. I don't go to church. You don't go to church? Who's your pastor? I, 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 don't, have, I, I don't have pastor. I, I just I don't have a whole lot of time for church and stuff like that. Okay. I said, well, the, the people that I pastor are very faithful. They believe in giving. They believe in supporting and helping and blessing anybody. But I said, I want to be honest with you. It, doesn't it seem strange that you would take the money of faithful people who believe in God and believe in doing the work of the Lord and then turn around and just start giving it to people who don't care anything about God or care anything about the church? Does that seem right to you? Well, I guess I never thought about it like that. Well, of course they hadn't thought about it like that because if you call four pastors in a row and they give you three or $400, you got $1,200 inside of a half hour. So then I start asking more questions. Where do you live? 
Can I meet with you? Something like that. So occasionally, then I get a name, get an address. Okay, so I go over there. Then you walk over to somebody's house. Then outside the house, they got 15 satellites outside the house for all the television channels. I got a thousand television channels, you know, they can't watch but one at a time. Everybody in there, including all the kids, got cell phones. I'm mercy me, that's two or three hundred dollars a month, you know. So by the time I'm done with my, my lecture on economics, okay, they're already mad at me, but I've, I've tried to help them to see that you can get help if you really need help. I said, number one, you really do need to get plugged into a fellowship, because if you're involved with a fellowship, then there'll be a bunch of hearts that God can touch to be a blessing to you because they know you personally. That's the first thing. Second thing is you need to know the difference between what you need and what you want, your needs and your wants. So you, you say you need three or $400, but you want three or $400 worth of cell phone bills every, every month. If, if you cut down some of that, then you already got your money to handle all your shutoff notice and stuff like that. So you take people down that road, and it helps people to understand that in the house of God, you have to be good stewards over what you have. Because if, if with every phone call I received like that, <clears throat> there would just never be any money in any of the churches, ever. Because once people realize that you're running a social services organization, then they see it no longer as a church, but they see it as an opportunity to receive funds. Now, now there are a lot of pastors and a lot of people that, that would think that that's mean and they think they'll just give the money away, but I usually say this. I say, okay, first of all, you're talking about giving away other people's money. That's the first thing. It's other people's money. If you really believe that it's a mean thing to do, then when the, the, just go into your pockets and give your money. And then the next day when they show up, go right back into your wallet again and give your money. But it's easy to give away other people's money without a conscience at all. So look at verse 12. The priesthood being changed is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe. Talking about Jesus. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. And it's evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, which tribe Moses said nothing concerning a priesthood. And yet it's far more evident for after the similitude or likeness of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who was made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. And then he quotes Psalm 110. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So folks, as, as Christians. We constantly remind ourselves that we serve a priest who is eternal and he's, he has an unending life. So when I, when I walk to the back or in the other locations, put our monies or Tiff puts our monies in the, the tithing or offering receptacle, we, we, we normally say grace, you know, just, just scripture. And we, we drop that in and we just, we just believe that, that God multiplies what's put in. See, he multiplies. If, if we're faithful to give to God, then God turns around and he gives back. The scripture says you reap what you sow. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. Yeah. If you want a lot of corn, you've got to plant a lot of seed corn. But if you don't want a whole lot, don't plant a whole lot of seed corn. Yeah. So it's a matter of, of looking at, at it in that regard also. Now, I do think that uh, believers should be able to give without looking for something in return. See, there's something to blessing people who are unable to bless you back. Even the 
Lord said, the poor you will have with you always. And he said that if you bless someone who's able to turn around and bless you back, what return or what reward do you have? But you give to somebody who's unable to bless you back? Homeless person, family struggling with a bunch of kids, having difficulties. Then you find that the Lord does a wonderful thing for you. But always remember, even that is not part of your tithe. That's an offering. That's an offering. Old Testament speaks of many different kinds of offerings. So in the local church, the believer walks with God in such a way that his heart should be touched and able to give to the Lord. Think of how faithful uh, you folks through the years have been to help me in the endeavors that I've been involved with. Kenyan Missions Project, so many other things. I mean, everybody's dedicated and faithful to, the, to their fellowships and things like that. But we've never gone without or lacked when it came to what we're doing in blessing people overseas. I mean, some little preacher gets $30 a, a, a month, and I mean, his, his, his smile stretches from ear to ear because he's happy that somebody loves him enough and cares enough to be able to bless him because the people in his sphere of influence over there don't have the ability. So when somebody outside of that particular community of, community of relations that he has pours into it, that's a blessing also. That's the same thing with us. We had a man one time years ago in uh, Saudi Arabia, I think he was, or Egypt, wherever he was, for some reason or another, he took a liking to me. He heard me minister out in California. And then this man just, just starts sending checks to the Red Cloud Church. It was like $800 a month, $800 a month. It just kept coming, kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. And all, all he did was hear me teach and minister just one time. He just, just hear me ministering the Word of God. All of these things can happen when, in a local church, if people understand that God can bless through giving. See, you don't have to manipulate people. You just present what's going on and people are willing to give. I heard D. James Kennedy one time get up on television and announce. He said, I, we, we need some help from people that are on television. Anything you can do to help us? I think it was like $1.3 million they, they needed. I mean, inside of three months, they retired the debt. Why did they retire the debt? Because people believed in what he was saying. That's the whole key to anything in a local church. If the Israelites believe in what's taking place in the tabernacle and in the temple and believe that God is helping them, they'll turn around and tithe and then give to all the different things that are taking place. And the same thing in a local church. If somebody is involved with something in any fellowship that you find worthy, a worthy cause, then you give and you bless them and other people are blessed by it. And then no one has to get up and dream up ways of how to get your money out of your pockets. Yeah. Just lay awake at night, just balloon captions over their head, trying to figure this out. Saying, if I, if I tell them, if I minister the word and then afterwards I tell them that the first 50 people that run to the altar as fast as they can and put $1,000 down, God's going to give them a thousand-fold return. We'll do that. Then pretty soon people do that, and you, and, and, and you notice they don't stop it with the 50th person. If there's 51 or more that's still coming, they let the other ones keep on coming. So you, we, we don't ever want to fall into manipulation. God designed this so that in the local church it would function with a really simple, simple design. Just don't be selfish. That, that's all it is. Don't, don't be selfish. Verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. 
But the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made a priest. For those priests were made without an oath. But this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That takes us right back to Psalm 110. Those other ones didn't become priests in this manner. God didn't make any kind of declaration over them in that regard that they're forever priests after the order of Melchizedek. But verse 22 says, By so much was Jesus made a surety or guarantor of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. So many priests through the generations came about because so many of them died. You had one generation of priests that died, another generation of priests that arose. You couldn't become a priest until you were 30. So you had people that were retiring from the priesthood. Same time you had people coming into the priesthood. You had people being born into the tribe of Levi's. You had people that were dying. But the good thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is he has the power of an endless life. It's been 2,000 years and our priest has never died. We've never needed a new one. That's what he's saying. We don't have to have somebody else to collect what we give to him. But then verse 24 says, he continueth forever, and he has an unchangeable priesthood, and he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to him, come to God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. Notice it says, come to God by him. Jesus said, if any man come to the Father, must come by the Son. No one can have a relationship with God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, hold on, Pastor Darrell, there are a whole lot of people in this world that say you can have a relationship with God and that all religions essentially are spokes on the wheel of, of, of heaven and, and that God is at the hub. And no matter what religion you're a part of, you get to God. That's not what it says here. What it says here, he is able to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by who? By him. Talking about Jesus. So except a person comes in Jesus name, they don't have access to God. There is no access to God. The door is closed. Jesus said, <clears throat> I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The book of Acts, I think it's chapter 4. It says, neither is there salvation in any other name under the heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is so important, and his role in redemption is so important essential that anybody that tries to modify redemption and stand somebody alongside Christ as a pathway unto the Lord, the scripture says, treat that individual as a thief or a robber. Anybody tries to come up into the sheepfold in any other way, because it is Christ that ever lives to make intercession. He's the only one that's eternal. So you don't reach God by praying as some of the, the Shiite Muslims do, uh, to saints that have passed away. You don't have to go to a shrine or grave of some holy person that has passed away and, and pray special prayers and assume that, that somehow they're going to help you on the other side. The scripture here says, it is Christ that ever lives to make intercession for you. As we're in here right now, Christ is at the right hand of the Father and he is the one making sure that our petitions are ushered into the presence of God the right way. That judgment, and anything like that is, is dispensed somewhere else rather than to us because the blood of Jesus Christ has protected us from, from the judgment that uh, surely could have come to us. For such a high priest became us 
who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Now that's a beautiful verse. Oh yeah, that's absolutely a marvelous verse. You cannot describe Aaron in the Old Testament like that. Because he certainly wasn't separate from sinners. He built the golden calf. And there were a whole lot of priests under the old covenant that didn't qualify for this simply because of the many different sins that they were involved in. And it says, who needs not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. The Old Testament priests not only offered animal sacrifices for their own people, they offered them for themselves and for their own family. They were in need of the the shedding of the animal's blood as much as the people for whom they labored. Yeah, that's nice. Jesus never needed to die for himself. He only had to die for us. The scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin. He was the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. If he was a sinner, he couldn't have done that. If it was possible for a sinner to take away the sins of the world, Abraham could have died for your sins. Moses could have died for your sins. David could have died for your sins. Isaiah could have died for your sins. I could have died for your sins. But not a sinner. It had to be someone pure, undefiled, spotless, without any blemish. And the scripture says here, he offered up himself. He says, nobody takes my life, but I lay it down for the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity. That means a person could have become a priest under the Old Testament. They had all kinds of weaknesses in their flesh and problems in their life and difficulties, even a cold, a fever or a sickness. But the word of the oath, which was since the law makes the son who is consecrated forevermore. Jesus never had one issue that needed to be resolved through the shedding of any kind of blood. Now, the one thing this does teach us is that redemption is a powerful thing. And redemption has many different compartments. Many different compartments. Isaiah 53 talks, well, let me take you there. Go to Isaiah 53. I'll show you this, and this is where we'll stop. Isaiah 53. Because I don't want you to leave here with any kind of understanding that prevents you from knowing that your heart as well as your purse and pocketbook has to be redeemed. All of that. Isaiah 53, this is the chapter that speaks to us about our Savior. It's quoted many times, but I want to start in verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Him is Jesus. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That is what Jesus did. Therefore, because he bore their iniquities, I will divide him a portion with the great, He shall divide the, what's the next word there? Spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now here's the the thought. When Jesus died, according to Colossians, he spoiled the powers and principalities. 
Remember when Abraham went against the kings of the east? The scripture says he brought back the spoil. See? The spoil. And it was of the spoil that he rendered to Melchizedek. The scripture here says in Isaiah 53 of the Lord in regard to redemption, once he did everything that he did by bearing our sins, he in turn took of all that he gathered, all that he had obtained, and then he turned around and shared it or dispersed it abroad amongst all of us that are part of the same body. How do we know that? Because Ephesians says that when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he granted us the opportunity also to be seated in heavenly places with him. He who is rich in grace and mercy has enriched us with grace and mercy. Spiritually, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So when God saved you, he saved you that your body would become the temple of the Holy Spirit in which he's going to reside. That means that everything, your mind, your heart, your soul, and your strength belongs to God. Your body belongs to God. Your labor belongs to God because the scripture says whatsoever you do, do as unto the Lord. That means your earnings and your income belong to God. That's the only reason he's able to say to us, I want 10 percent. If he didn't own us, he couldn't say it. He's our master. He's our Lord. He's our savior. And this is why we're faithful to be givers unto God in that regard. So any conversation you ever have with any Christian about redemption. And the, and the subject of money comes up, you make sure you let them know m money is the least of all things when it comes to, to redemption. That, that's the tangible thing you can see. And it doesn't require any kind of faith or hope to believe in something that you can see. But if, if a man or woman can believe that all of their sins disappear and are eradicated the moment they believe that Jesus died on the cross for them, that same person can turn around and also believe that they can be faithful to give to God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very, very important very important principle, because I hear people all the time who uh, like to say to pastors, you know, those, those folks in church, uh, th those people in church, they don't do anything, but all they do is talk about money. Well, I know that's not true for me, but, but I imagine there's some people are that, that do that. But when it comes up in the teaching, I do teach on it. Yeah, I, I do. I do teach on it. And, it. and it's important to make sure that it's dealt with. And the people who you hear complain about how much it costs to be in church and stuff like that, they'll be the ones that when someone dies, they want the church to pay for their funeral, family's funeral, and they want the, the women to take off work and, and stay back and cook and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and they're busy complaining the whole time about how much it costs, and it hasn't cost them anything. But all the other people that are being so very faithful. So as a Christian, in your conversation with people, just let them know, I'd much rather give to God and withhold from God because he's been too good to me by redeeming me. And I'm so glad I'm saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you. This was a marvelous lesson, Lord. And I am so happy that we were able to go through the scripture and show that our Savior is the new Melchizedek. Father, if anywhere in this room this evening we have not been as faithful as we need to be, in any aspect of what we taught on, God, help us to be all that we need to be, Lord. We pray, God, that you would prosper every family in here. Bless them in, in regard to whatever they set their hands to. Let it prosper. And we pray, God, that you would allow blessings to overtake each of us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, 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 amen.